Can you all hear me okay? Thanks. Um, uh, it, is a really, it really is a privilege to get to come here this morning. Um, I'm almost 47 years old, and I'm almost uh, starting to have to have reading glasses all the time. And my first comment was, is that stage really going to be that dark? Uh, so where Drew might be able to stand over in the middle, I might have to be over here to be able to read my Bible. So we'll see. So they told me to, to you know, be ready to sort of be toward the, near the center of the stage. Um, and uh, the stories of what we had in church planting also are just uh, a series of comedies, adventures. It's, it's one of the things we joked around. If you were at Trinity, we started uh, 12 years ago in uh, January of 97. And we met in seven different locations before we settled into the building we were able to purchase. And so our joke was, if you, if you were at Trinity, you had to want to be there because you had to hunt to find us. Um, and so that's kind of our experience of being in schools or things equivalent. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, a lot of exciting times. I realize a lot of you it might be new to church or new even to the trying to figure out what you believe or if you believe Christianity. And for you, uh, we just want to encourage you. If you're in this room thinking, yeah, this whole thing's kind of weird, you're right, okay? I just want to reassure you, you're, you're not wrong to think this is weird. Uh, it is, but uh, we believe in what we're doing. And if I could help you understand something, especially if you're not part of the church, uh, there's often this thought is, why do we need more churches? I mean, aren't there enough already? And this is the way I would try to help you, you know, gauge that, that question. In Lakeland... Uh, 190,000 people are unchurched. So out of 235,000 residents, 80% of it is unchurched. Same, same thing is true here in Winter Haven. Those are statistics for Polk County. And if you, and that's good research. That's research that's just really been produced just even in the last year and a half. So in the research we have, if you think about it this way, if we're not trying to get people that go to other churches to jump and switch to our church, we're trying to connect really to people like you who do not have a faith or a, a church affiliation yet. It would take, if you can get the, your mind around this idea, if you planted 30 churches of 500 people in Lakeland, you wouldn't even reach 10% of the unchurched population. So when we began to, to look at the work of being a church plant, our, our heart was very clearly set from the beginning. Is it wasn't the goal wasn't just to be a church plant, it was to be a church that planted churches that planted churches, because we saw that the larger need was so desperate, and the the, the times were so dark. Now that was ninety ninety seven. You look at the dynamics of what's going on in our culture and society today, and I think there's even a greater sense of urgency. So we're thrilled with what you're doing. Those of you who are part of the core team, thank you for what you're doing, and uh, thank you for what you're investing and giving and sacrificing, and we're so grateful and so uh, so excited. This morning, uh, what we're looking at is in the book of Galatians. It's been a series we're working through since spring, and if I could describe it for you this way, it, it's just this simple idea. The Apostle Paul was a man who hated Jesus. Then he met Jesus after Jesus was raised from the dead, and it changed his whole life, and it changed his heart. So that Paul, who was, in a sense, he was a very religious man, but he hated God. See, he thought he thought he understood God, but then he met him. And when he met God in the human form, raised from the dead, it totally recalibrated everything about everything he understood or wanted to be or to do. For he had been a bigot. He had been a Jew of Jews who hated Gentiles. 
uh, he became a, a man who was consumed with love for those very people. So that man changed, was then going out and was declaring the good news of what God had done to come to earth to save people like you and me in Christ. And then the work he was working in modern day, what is now modern day Turkey, that is the, the area that is known as Galatia. So if you can get in your mind, he was working through a series of cities in that area and then wrote a, a letter to them. And the reason he wrote the letter was because people had come behind him and had begun to try to change the message. They had basically pitched this idea. Well, faith in Jesus is good, but you still need more. And Paul was coming back to say, no, 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 no. You need Jesus. Now, you need to make sure you really understand the fullness of what it means to have Jesus. But you don't need Jesus plus anything. And so that's kind of the original setting. That's what Paul was doing in writing this letter. And we're looking at this passage this morning from the middle of chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4. So we've got it printed for you if you want to read along. And you're going to see how long my arms can reach. Picking up verse 15 in chapter 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made, the promises of God, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Into your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. And is this law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has come, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were as baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from the slave. And though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. It's the reading of God's Word. Everybody that is over 20 knows about the mortgage crisis. 
Well, I realize a lot of you are kids and students, and you don't really understand what the mortgage crisis might be about, but I think you understand this. Money's tight. You can understand that your moms and dads are, are really looking at the idea of budget and uh, constraints and what you can and can't spend, and maybe used to never talk about that. But those of you who are older understand that the mortgage situation that has been now uh, really uh, running rampant through our society was framed around or, or caused, triggered by one critical problem. It worked this way. Hundreds of thousands of people, when they went to apply for a mortgage, basically did this. They estimated what they could afford, and they were wrong. Hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of families across this country. And this is the, this is the way the mortgage situation had worked for generations. If you came to the table and you basically had an intention, we would like to buy a house, this process of sifting was really working this way. Can we check what you make and what you have to make sure that when the hour comes for you to be able to pay for it, that you will have what you need? When that sifting process was changed, the, this, the examination, the scrutiny, what are your assets? What's your income? How much do you make right now? What's your projected income? What's your ratio of debt? All of that scrutiny was just suddenly just put aside. So then the question was, in a sense, how much do you want to borrow? Here. And then when the hour of repayment came, hordes of people were caught. And now the dominoes that have begun to tumble through our society have really begun to have profound implications. I mean, that's the thing that's what's so humbling to us as an entire people is we really did not exercise very much foresight to look ahead and anticipate what really will be the repercussions of this kind of indebtedness. So widespread, so thorough, so deep, so long. And now everybody's being humble. But here's my analogy. If the goal of the scrutiny was just around this one central question, when the need comes, will you have what you need? That scrutiny was resisted. That scrutiny was resented. And that scrutiny was evaded by hordes of people in our society. And so now that the hour of need has come, what has been revealed about our society? Most of us don't have what we need. If you think it's hard financially, what do you think it's going to be like on the hour of your judgment? You see, the gospel has been put in place for God to ask you a central question. Every one of you and me too. Will you have what you need? Because there is an hour of repayment. It is as coming as surely as your next heartbeat is coming. And there's going to be an hour where every one of us is going to face our maker. And there's going to be a need. And that need is absolute perfection and holiness. Are you going to have what you need? That's what Paul was writing about. And what he was writing about as we work our way, the outline we've got prepared for you, if you want to follow along, you may not want to. We're going to look at the problem of how there was a hope there were people who thought they had what they needed because they had the law. 
And Paul is going to great lengths to try to explain arguments to us that don't make them necessarily a lot of sense, but to his original audience, they sure did. But he's going to try to help them see, you know what? You have a hope in the law. You have a hope really in a sense in your own behavior. That's not going to get you what you need. There is, however, something different than the law. And there's been something that's been offered to you in Christ, which is a new identity. And the promise of a new, entire new identity that comes by trusting Jesus. But not just a new identity, but also something further than that, a new heart. A, a transformation that's internal that affects the deepest motivations that you and I have. Okay? That's where we're going to work our way through this passage, all right? So let's start with the problem of what the law is and why it can't save. The way I would say it simply is this. Everybody in this room is trusting something. You're trusting something to give a basic orientation to your life. You're trusting something to give you a sense of either that you know you're okay or that you're making progress toward what will make you okay. For example, students, there's an idea in your, in your schools right now that there's a certain identity. There's a certain look. There's a certain set of behaviors. There's a certain set of possessions. You know, if you've got the right iPod, if you've got the right car, if you've got the right sense of, of physical shape and conditioning, you've got the right hair, you've got the right, you know, fashions, you've got the right amount of, of coin, then you are okay. And even if you don't have it yet, at least it's like this marker that if you can be making progress toward those things, then you're at least making progress toward being okay. For for adults, it's just a little more sophisticated, but it's the same list of stuff. You mean you have the right address? You have the right physical shape? I mean, how many you know millions of dollars are spent on looking the right way? Do you have the right asset list? Do you have the right amount of investments? Do you have the right IRA? Do you have the right car? Do you have the right beach home? Same kind of thing. So either you know that you or you believe you're okay. Or at least you have this marker toward which you think you can make progress. And if you're making progress toward those things, you're going to be okay. Now, in this setting, what it was being controlled by was the teaching of Jewish leaders. And it was the idea that what made you okay was you conformed to the law. The reason I would contrast it is because in our society, we're so biblically illiterate. We don't have any regard. Most of us have been raised in an entirely secular environment. And I'm sure most of you have been educated in one. Your education has been either in public schools or in state schools where the idea of God was really irrelevant. I mean, you came to faith, not at school, you came to faith as some sideline or some side source other than school. Because you weren't getting that in college biology and you weren't getting that in your secular humanities classes and you weren't getting it anywhere else in the society. But there's these markers of what makes your life okay. And that's what the law was for these Jewish leaders. And what they were trying to pitch to this original audience, these people in modern day Turkey, the Galatians, what they were saying was, OK, now it's good that you might want to talk about faith and faith in the Lord, but you, you still need to now keep all these rules. It might be the same way you might be tempted of maybe some of you who regard yourself to be Christians. You have this sense of, OK, well, I have faith in Jesus, but boy, you're still just as driven to look good. You have a faith in Jesus that might be real, but you're still just you're still just as agitated to have a little more money or have it, you know, to be able to, to get through this financial you know, tough spot. You have just a sense of, a, of an urgency after that list I just rattled off to you. 
then in a sense, you're right where the Galatians were. You have faith, but there's still a sense that you need more. Faith, but but a, a, a nicer house would be better. Faith, but if I could lose 10 pounds. Faith, but just a little more job security. You see the temptation? And the problem was, those things don't save. Those things cannot save. Let's look at what Paul says specifically. When you look at it, if you pick back up in, in chapter 3, in verse 21. Notice what he asks. Is the law contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. But if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would come by the law. What's Paul saying there? The law can't give life. That wasn't its purpose. Can I, can I make it just this plain? What's the difference between blueprints and a dump truck? Blueprints can tell you how to plan. Blueprints can give you an insight into a design. But can you carry a load of concrete in your blueprint? They don't serve that function, do they? But now, what does a dump truck get, give you? You can carry dirt, you can carry block, you can carry lumber, you can carry a work crew. You can carry a load with a dump truck. What was the law designed to do? The law was God's blueprint. The law was God's plan to show you what you were created to be because the law reveals Him. What the law was given to do was to show you who God is and what God is like. So when God says, for example, be faithful, what God is saying is not just a law between a husband and a wife or a, a man and a woman, be faithful. He was also saying, I'm faithful. You were created, remember in Genesis 1, you were created to image Him. So when God says in a law, don't steal, it's because it's a revelation of His heart that He does not steal. When God tells you to be content, don't covet, what is God revealing about Himself? He's blissfully happy to be who He is. God does not sit around wringing His hands saying, gosh, I wish I looked like her. Gosh, I wish I could be Him. God loves who He is. He's content. And when He calls you to be content, not covet, He's revealing that you're, you were designed to be like Him. So the law was like blueprints. The law shows you what God built you to be. The God that designed you in His likeness is also being revealed in that. But now, does the law carry a load? No. And that's what's being revealed. You see the blueprint. Now, anybody that's ever been in the process of building knows there's an enormous transition that goes from blueprint to structure. And something that's really fun, I, I got the chance to do furniture when I was a younger man. And doing a lot of work with furniture, one of the first things you realize is that the, the plan and the product are always different. Because things happen in the process of building. Wood warps. There's a cut that might be just a sixteenth of an inch too short. And then you realize when you put it together, there's a gap now. And there's something not quite square. And then as you begin to work through the process of now the construction, you always are now making adjustments or improvements or repairs. I've, I've built a set of built-in bookshelves in my house. And it's funny now, whenever I walk into my, my study... As soon, as soon as I walk in, I can always spot the flaws immediately. 
I built it, I know what it was designed to look like on paper, and I know what it looks like in reality. And there's a difference. There's warping in one of the places on the kind of the cabinet top. Because I use soft pine like an idiot. There's other places where there's gouges because of handling the tools and a guy that was helping me swung a ladder around and banged the wood and there's a gouge in it. No matter no amount of putty and sanding and paint can quite cover up that spot. I see the things that weren't quite lined up because yes, I have four children. And I let my kids help me. So there's places where there's trim work that's not quite in line, but it, it makes me smile because it makes me think of my kids. But do you see the gap between the structure and the blueprint? And when God reveals what you and I are in reality compared to the contrast, what does the law expose? Go back to the passage. If you're, you're there with me. So why was the law given? Why then the law, verse 19? It was added because of transgressions. The law is a floodlight on that structure. I mean, it's one thing for me to look at the, the flaws in my book, my bookshelves in the light of day. But if you turned on every light and turned on high, you know, high wattage lights and lamps to really spotlight what those things, how many more flaws would you find? Take the holy light of God himself and shine it on you. And what are you compared to what he designed you to be? Now do you see the flaws just begin to be exposed everywhere? And yet, see, the Jews were saying, oh, no, we just need the blueprints. We need the blueprints. We just need the blueprints. And the blueprints are what we need. And we have the blueprints. And, and you need the blueprints, too. And if you could just cling to the law. And Paul is saying, Wait, no, 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 no. That's not what the law was designed to do. You need a dump truck. You have a burden that needs to be carried. And those blueprints can no more solve your problem then they can, those blueprints could hold a stack of fender blocks. Johnson Edwards had this statement to say. He said, your, your hope in your moral performance can no more stop the wrath of God than a spider web can stop a falling rock. You see, we got a problem. This God who designed us to be what we are owns us. We don't own ourselves. And yet, how many of us have lived most of our lives without any regard to God, no thought of God? I know if you're not a Christian or you're not sure what you are here, I'm sure most of your life has not been lived thinking, I'm so glad God owns me. You're like, God owns me. You're, you're probably debating that very claim in your mind right now. I want you to believe this. The Bible says it over and over and over. God owns you. If we were able to split your heart open and find a title deed to your soul, your name's not on it. His name is. And so in the ownership of your life, how have you lived so much of your life thinking of yourself, defining yourself, trying to solve your problems, trying to gain a sense of anchoring your identity so you're like, I know who I am and I know why I believe I'm good or I know why I'm making progress toward being what I think I need to be. And my hunch is that has not been referenced toward what God's design of you is. It's been designed toward, I mean, it's been aimed at your concept of your design. Can you understand that if you've been so fundamentally wrong about that, on the hour of your need, the hour that you face God, 
you're going to be as ill-prepared and unready as these mortgage holders are around our country. That they thought they had what they needed and just one adjustment in mortgage rates, one adjustment in interest rates, and suddenly now they went from thinking I have enough every month to now being drastically exposed. I've got so much more month than I have paycheck. Folks, this situation in our society is about money and it'll change. That situation is about eternity and it won't change. And I want you to have what you need. Paul was writing this so that you would have what you need. And the law cannot answer the problem of your transgressions. You need a Savior. You need the work of Jesus. Every person here needs it. You need it. I need it. And that's the good news of the coming of Christ. Not blueprints, but a dump truck. Because, see, this is this is how foolish it seems for you to say, okay, well, I don't really need Jesus. I don't really need that. I don't need help. I, I, I resist the idea of, of being told I'm broken, I'm weak. Okay, but it's as, it's, make, that makes as much sense as you being on a ship that's going down and, and you swim right by a life raft to hang on to the anchor on the ship as it goes down. That's how much sense that makes. Because you are going down. What was the hope? Paul writes about it in this way. Notice the transition if you go pick up at verse 26. In Christ. Get my arms a little longer. In Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. What he's talking about there is a massive change of identity. And so let's keep the financial analogy rolling, okay? What would it be like if you were facing mortgage foreclosures right now? Let's imagine that, I mean, I realize in a room this big, this many people, some of you really might be. You might be underwater a little bit. You might be really upside down a few payments. You might be really on the ropes. But this, let's say, hypothetically speaking, you could get into your mind that you are facing that kind of problem. What would change if you found out that you were the descendant of somebody unwitting to you, but you were the descendant of somebody that was worth billions? What would change in your need if you found out that you were the descendant of this person and he had, be, had had a bequest, he had a will. And that you were named in that will for billions of dollars. What would change? Now the bills are still in front of you, you still have the mortgage, but now what has changed because of the shift in your identity? Just one thing changed. You didn't know who you were, then you found out who you were. And your discovery of your identity changed everything. That's what Paul's trying to reason. In yourself, you are bankrupt before God, you're guilty and you're broken. But in Christ, what God Himself came to do, God driving the dump truck, not bringing out the blueprints again, but God driving up the dump truck to your soul and to mine saying, hey, can I carry your burden? Can I take all the load of your sin? going to take all of your shame and everything you regret 
Can I take everything that you failed at, every dashed dream, every bitter experience, every tragedy, can I take it all? Can I carry your burden? Do you see the shift? Because see, the, the contrast in the, in, is between really your insistence to try to bear your burden alone or your humility to finally throw your hands up and say, I'm broke, I'm corrupt, and I'm trapped. That's who I really am by myself. But related to somebody who owns everything, it all changes. That's what Paul's trying to work you through. Notice the kind of descriptions he uses. The first one he's going to try to describe you is the contrast between what Christ gives you versus what the world gives you. Notice the world's categories. They're, they're racial. They're status-driven. They're gender-driven. You see the way he says that now in Christ... There's not these things in verse 28, chapter three. There's neither Jew nor Greek. That was a racial comparison. How many of you have been raised raised to your understanding of who your what your core identity? Who are you really? You are this nationality or not that one. There's pride or there's shame. There's an amazing sense of either superiority or inferiority based upon the idea of just your, your racial background. And please tell me who who picked. None of us did. Who got to pick their racial ancestry? Nobody. But that's the way the world functions. Or it's in terms of status. Slave or free. There's a sense of that. Now, now think about how much that resonates in our culture. We are a performance meritocracy. We are a society that measures human worth by what you can achieve. And it seems like this is an age-old problem. Those are the Jewish culture, the Greek culture, the Roman culture, it was the same thing going on there. How are you viewed in terms of your status? Are you slave or free? What have you achieved? What are you trapped in? You see the problem? And what Paul was saying is, wait, no, 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 no. Those things don't define you anymore. Not Neither does gender. Now, gender in that society is a radically different issue than how it works out, but it still carries the same amount of emotional intensity. In our society... Since you know, really the women's liberation movement of the early '70s really began to to launch, uh, you know, a, a movement in our society has had profound implications. Some of it good, some of it horrible. But what you nonetheless can feel if you're a woman in this society, you you feel probably this agitation: Who am I? Because part of the society is saying, you know, what you're not really free as a woman until you can look at every man in your life and say, I hate you and I don't need you. But there's another part of the society that's trying to think through the idea, especially from a biblical worldview, you're trying to think through how do I have a sense of identity and and humble myself by the world standards to say I'm going to be a mom and be happy. And it's a hard job. And yet you get mocked by your, your secular peers. And a lot of times you don't get appreciated even by your conservative Christian peers. Do you see the tension? You feel the weight of it? In Roman society, to be a woman was to be nothing. I mean, you had no property rights. You had no, no voting. You had, I mean, there's a, there's a horribly cynical quote from uh, Seneca, one of the Roman statesmen and, and really an orator. And Seneca had this, this quote. You, wives are there for legitimate offspring. Whereas concubines exist for pleasure. But in either regard, he says, if 
if it were not, if women were not in the world, the, stat, the, the experience of a man would not be lessened to that much of a degree. Isn't that awful? God's design was that Adam and Eve co-equal, though with different roles, equal substance, but but differing roles in, in, in the responsibility of God's design, just as we would say the same thing about the Trinity. The Father and the Son are co-equal. Just as Jesus is co-equal with the Father, but has a different role, so a husband and a wife have in God's design. And notice why Paul could say that. In Christ, doesn't matter. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What defines your identity? And Paul was saying, do you see what really could and should? In Christ. And then he uses this language of being clothed. To be clothed with Christ is to really carry that covering. That there's that sense of well, I, now, the, the things I put on my body today are things that I think everybody would agree, I'm glad you put on clothes. I'm glad too. I'm glad you're dressed. But as you think through the reality of what it means to be clothed, it's to be covered. It's to be protected. And it certainly is. Think about think of how much that goes to the issue of security. How Vulnerable were Adam and Eve in the garden. Once their sin was laid bare. The shame. The sense of, oh my gosh, I've been exposed. What does it mean that they tried to cover themselves, but that God comes on the scene and God took action to cover them? Now see, here's where you see the gospel foreshadowed on about the second page of the Bible. Maybe the third page, depending on what Bible version you have. Many people have never really noticed this before. Those of you who are raised in church, I would be curious how many of you have ever caught the significance of this contrast. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves. When they actually are cast out of the garden, though, then it says, but then God clothed them with the skins of animals. And let me just ask you this question. Where did those skins come from? I mean, was it like a zipper suit? And, you know, the, the, the deer was able to unzip his skin and give it, or the, the, the lamb was able to take out, shed its skin? No. Here's the principle. An innocent was killed to cover the guilty. And that's going to be the theme of the whole Bible. We try to cover ourselves, it will not do. God will kill an innocent to cover the guilty and it will become Jesus. Because God Himself will come to be killed. To cover the guilty. What would it mean to be so clothed by God? To be clothed in God. Do you see what Paul's saying? Do you see how this changes your identity? And this is where I would say, if, now, if you, now if you're not a Christian, I want you to listen in to how I talk to Christians. Now, I want to, if you regard yourself to be a Christian, I want to ask you, is that really what, not what you think of yourself, this is the test. Does anybody living around you, does anybody living with you and your family, does anybody live, working around you believe that that's how you believe? You hear the question? If we poll, if you regard yourself to be a Christian and we poll your coworkers, and I was able to interview them honestly for five minutes and say, hey, you know your coworker David? Do you believe that David believes that the greatest factor in his identity is being clothed by God in Christ? Do you believe that? Or do you believe David is excited about being clothed in his profession? That David's known for what he does? Or 
or you know, you're known for your education, or you're known for your achievements, or you're known for your physical strength, or you're known for what? You see the problem? You regard yourself to be a Christian, but nobody around you believes it. Because what you really live for is just what the world lives for. You live for a bigger house, you live for a bigger car, you live for a finer body, you live for more cash, you live for a sense of achievement. Look how big I am, I've clothed myself. And we're just like Adam and Eve. We're in the garden trying to clothe ourselves with leaves and God knows it doesn't cover us. What would change for the people you live with to believe that you believe it? For the people who work with you that they believe you believe it? What would that look like? I'll tell you what it won't look like is arrogance. I'll tell you what it will look like is humility. I've got no hope on anything I can do to cleanse myself. I can't undo my shame. I can't undo my failures. I can't undo the wrong I've done. I can't, I can't solve this problem any more than a spider web can stop a falling rock. I need to be clothed in Christ. And not just clothed in Him, but given a new heart. You see what happens in the beginning of chapter 4? He says something happens not just on the outside, something happens on the inside. It's so, it's so amazing this thing that God has done in Christ. He's come in to say, look, okay, now I've revealed the blueprint. I've revealed you for how broken you are. You're guilty and you're corrupt. The way I would say, the way I literally I teach my children. My oldest is 18. My youngest is down to nine. But, you know, we've been working on them for a few years. There might be a few things sinking in. Maybe. As we start to think through the ways, this is the way we always thought. It's guilt and brokenness. You're in trouble, but you're also, you're torn up. See, those are the two problems of sin. The guilt is really the I'm in trouble dynamic. That really is what's covered in the identity part. But what about the torn up part? I remember having this conversation with my son. We were on the way to school. He was 12 years old at the time, almost 13. And we were driving by a neighbor's house. The route we go every morning. And he had this candy apple red Beamer convertible sitting out in his driveway for sale sign. I elbowed Tyler and I said, hey, Tyler, can you imagine what would happen if you stole Mr. Davidson's convertible? And what a friend of mine calls the are you on crack look. I mean, my son looks at me like, what? I said, just work with me. Just work with me. What would happen if you stole Mr. Davidson's convertible? You've seen me drive all these years, you know, grab the steering wheel, hit the gas, steer. What would happen? And if you stole it and you go ripping down Cambridge, the street he lives on at the end, and you take the curve too sharp and you wrap it around that oak tree at the end of the street. What, what problems would you have? Then I really got the are you on crack look. I mean, he's like, like, kind of like, Dad, you're a pastor. Why are you talking about car theft? You know? Just Tyler, work with me. What problems would you have if you did it? And he said, well, I'd be in trouble. Great answer. With whom? Uh, well, Mr. Davidson. Okay, good. Who else? Blue lights flashing in, in the sky? Anybody? Okay, the police. I'd be in trouble. Like, well, good. Anybody else? Exactly. He said, yeah, yeah, I'd be in trouble with you. Good. Anybody else? Thou shalt not steal. Thou, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'd, be, I'd be in trouble with God. Good. Great. What else would be... What else would be in, you know, what other problems would you have? 
He was completely stumped. No answers. And then I said, Tyler, what about the car? He's like, oh, I didn't think about that. And then I said, Tyler, I've had happened to a good friend of mine in growing up. What happens to the person in the car that hits the tree? Because my buddy literally had about everything on the left side of his body shattered. Skull, collarbone, arm, ribs, hip, leg. What would be wrong with you? And then I had him. And then the, the look of realization came over. He's like, oh, wow. And I said, two critical questions. Tyler, could you even get out of the car, let alone put it all back together and put it back in his driveway? And then his chin went down. He was like, no, it'd be a mess. I said, exactly. Tyler, the title deed on your heart and the title deed on my heart does not have our names. And yet we live like I know how this thing runs and we jump in the driver's seat, we hit the gas, and then we wrap it around a tree. We're in trouble with God. But do you have do you, do you feel it? Do you appreciate the way your heart is just wrapped around a tree? You have wrecked what God meant for beauty and good. God meant you to be a, a display of beauty and you've become a display of narcissism. God built you to shine the light of His love and generosity to people and all you do is bring attention to yourself. You're a mess. And you can't undo it. Now do you see why we need Jesus to come? And when He comes, that He answered both problems. He came to take the trouble, that's the cross, but He also came to fix the mess. And that's His life, His righteousness, His Spirit. Look at what Paul says. Now, when the fullness of time had come, we're chapter 4, verse 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so they might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. I would describe it this way simply. The reason you and I are a mess is because we don't cry out the Father. The reason we're a mess is because we have not been oriented toward God. We've been oriented toward ourselves. And in the way in which we've lived, we have cross purposes to his design because we've been living out of the brokenness that you and I were born with. Our fathers and mothers were born broken. They were, their fathers and mothers were born broken because all of us were born of Adam. And born of Adam, you do exactly what your father did. What would happen if you got a new heart? What would change? It's not just that Jesus took the punishment you deserve, but He came to give you an ability to live the life you were created to live. You see, you've, you've lacked that power. You've lacked that ability in and of yourself. I have too. I need a new heart. So it's not just that He came to re reconcile the problem of the trouble he came to heal the brokenness. And He did it by never sinning. And He then extends it by giving His Spirit into the hearts of people like you and me. So that what happens by faith in Christ is not just that I get, I get cleaned, but I get changed. You see, both and both matter. And both are being offered to you and me. Trust Jesus as your God and Savior 
Quit trusting in yourself as your own God and Savior. What does it look like to walk in repentance and faith every day? Is to the, this dawning realization, I can't save myself. But He came not just to give me blueprints, but to drive the dump truck and to carry the burden that I can't carry. He came to heal what I cannot heal, to restore what I can't fix. And that's the significance of being given the Spirit of the Son. The Son always obeyed the Father. What would happen if you had the Spirit of the One who always obeyed? I would have the hope of obedience. Where I've been selfish and you know, self-aggrandizing or self-measuring, what would happen if I had the Spirit of the One who never did His own will? Not my will, thy will be done. What changes would you expect to see in your heart if you really trusted Him for His Spirit? That He's changing my heart's desires every day. And it's not just that He put a rule out there that I can't keep, but He's actually given me power to keep the design by the very One who kept the design. You see how that's good news? You see how you can look then now? That's why you can be in a church, and if you've never been around a church like this one, where people say amazing things about their sinfulness. And you're like, gosh, how do they say that stuff? Especially if you've been raised in church where you don't, you don't admit your sin. I mean, you can't really call yourself what you really are. Now, the reason is, is because they've realized, wow, Jesus came to take all my sin. He's here to save me from my pornography. He's here to save me from my materialism. He's here to save me from my greed. He's here to save me from my arrogance and my self-righteousness. He came to, to take it all. And the hope I have, the only hope I have of any right living is Jesus in me. Well, then that means I can call myself what I am. I'm in trouble and I'm a mess. Praise God. He came to clothe me and to live in me. That's the promise that's been given to you and me today in Christ. Pray with me. Father, we praise you that you are this way. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Who else has treated us as well as you have treated us? I pray for hope for these, my brothers and sisters and friends, this, this, for this church of the Redeemer, that there would be a sense of hope because of your power to change what we can't change. I pray you give out a sense of, uh, a sense of light where there's only been darkness, a sense of relief where there's only been torment. I pray that you would give a sense of change where there's only been cold, dead sameness. I pray you pour out your spirit. That you pour out your spirit upon us to help us, enliven us, to transform us, and that we get to cry out to you, Abba, Father, because you've taken us from the prison cell right to the palace as your own children. Behold what manner of love is this, that we would be called children of God. And we praise you. That's what you've done. And that's what you came to bring about, Lord Jesus. So we trust you. And, and for those who do not yet trust, I pray, help. Help open their eyes and to, to break the chains of unbelief that they would turn to you and cling to you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.